Las Vegas, famous, fabulous playground of the West. A wide open town that never goes to sleep. Vegas! Vegas, baby, Vegas! You're either in or you're out. Right now. My best mates are going to Las Vegas this weekend. I'm told it's incredible. Las Vegas, here we go! Pack your bags and get ready for a different kind of Vegas experience with someone who knows Vegas inside and out. You're listening to Vegas Never Sleeps with Stephen Maggi. Must be tough to be the child of a legend. You grow up, on the one hand, you're around greatness all the time, and on the other hand, you're around greatness, and people are comparing you and so forth. Well, we have an eyewitness to history, and really, um, for those that have followed all the documentaries and so forth about his father, really an interesting guy, Vince Lombardi Jr. Vince, uh, what a pleasure. Um, was there a time when you were a kid where you're thinking, wow, I wonder if other people realize what I'm going through, or is it just a normal childhood and that's all you knew? Well, at the time, uh, you know, it didn't seem to be all that unusual. Uh, when the, by the time, you know, they started winning championships and Super Bowls, uh, I was in college or even out of college. So, you know, it, it, I had other things going on, so it wasn't that big a deal. Well, that's interesting. You know, I, I'm thinking about when you were a kid, even before that, when, when you first decided to move, or I should say your family decided to move, to make that jump from New York City, the hottest place on on the planet, really, to the most remote outpost, outpost you could find in football, Green Bay. Uh, I understand you you actually handled it better than like your sister and your mom did. Is that true? Well, again, uh, at the time I was uh, middle of my junior year in high school, so you know there was an initial uh, because obviously being the coach of the Packers was a big deal in Green Bay. But you know, after the initial couple of days where uh, you know you were hot stuff when you first walked into high school and that stuff. After a while, it just settled down, and it was uh, pretty normal. And uh, then I went off to college in a year and a half, and I had a whole lot of things on my plate. Well, let's talk about what your dad was going through before getting to Green Bay. Uh, He was with the Giants, a great assistant coach, known nationally. But I know he was starting to get frustrated, right, because he was in his 40s, which today doesn't seem like a big deal. But back then, not having a head coach job, kind of looked like, at least it might have looked like, uh, he was never going to get that opportunity. Yeah, uh, you know, he had uh, uh, quite a few interviews with pro teams and college teams, uh, but it never uh, worked out for one reason or another. And so, yeah, it, uh, if you had that kind of an ambition to be a head coach in your 40s, uh, it, it started to get a little frustrating. And uh, but he had a lot of people in his corner, and uh, the Green Bay thing uh, came up and it worked out. Was he a little concerned at the time about being an Italian American? I mean, I know my relatives uh, kind of grew up. My talked to my grandparents. It you know it was a tougher time. It's not like it is today. And was he kind of thinking, well, maybe, maybe there was uh, you know some prejudice that didn't allow him to get these jobs? Uh, he was he interviewed for a, uh, a college job in the South, 
and was subsequently told that the fact that his name ended in a vowel did have something to do with the fact he didn't get the job. And yeah, you know, back in that time, it it, uh, it could work against you. Obviously, not the case today. But back then in the 60s, yeah, it was an issue. Yeah, and that's sort of the one thing I've talked to with some of the former players and so forth. They all say without a doubt, this was a man who didn't have a racist bone. I mean, and, and he had a philosophy that kind of spread through the team. It really was sort of revolutionary at the time in the league. Well, again, uh, being uh, an Italian in New York uh, uh, at that period of time, uh, you did experience some, some, I wouldn't call it prejudice, but maybe that's, you know, I can't think of a better word. So, yeah, he was a little more open uh, to, or, you know, uh, vigilant as to the signs of such things. And, uh, you know, made sure that, uh, you know, it didn't happen on his watch. So you're with the New York Giants as a ball boy, which I find interesting. And, you know, you got to be able to do that and you saw all that going on. How different was kind of the environment of those teams compared to what your dad installed into Green Bay once he got there? Um, you know, I, I was I was a ball boy with the Giants all the way through that period of time, and then with the Packers. And quite frankly, you know, pro football was pro football. Hanging around with the guys was hanging around with the guys. So I can't uh, offhand tell you that the Giants' experience was markedly different from the uh, Packers' experience, other than the fact that with the Packers, obviously, uh, my dad was a head coach, and I had the Fortunately, uh, and the players, you know, I was with the Giants. I was buddies. I was just, you know, one of the guys. And then we got to the Packers, and I was the head coach's son. So they were kind of looking at me sideways. But uh, uh, one of the uh, a player came over from the Giants, Evelyn Tunnell, who was an All Pro and everything. And he told the Packer players pretty quickly they had nothing to worry about as far as uh, you know me being there and in their in their conversations. So that cleared it up pretty quickly and it got pretty normal. Well, that's good. I can see where that could be problematic. You don't want to get these strange looks. Well, now- with the Giants, uh, one time I was walking out with whatever, just as practice began and a couple of players were late. And the head coach, Jim Lee Howell, asked me in front of everybody who were the, who they were who were late. And I said, I don't remember I don't know. And he said, well, get off the practice field until you do remember. So he threw me out of practice. And uh, as hard as it is to do, but for a couple of days, I avoided my father, uh, you know, went to lunch or whatever at a different time. And finally, we caught up with each other. And he told me, if you had told anybody, I'd kill you. So uh, <laughs> that was that. So when we got to Green Bay, em- Emlyn Tanel again told the fellows that, they had nothing to worry about me. I had their backs. Well, that's really good because I think a lot of people don't realize that. And as much as he's a strict disciplinarian, he understood the human element of that sort of thing because that, that, you never could have done that job again. People would have looked at you really awkwardly. Uh, well, yeah, that was part of it. But, you know, you just you just don't tell on your buddies, you know. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, before we leave New York, I got to ask you about the 1958 game because that's so famous. Everybody goes back to it as the greatest game. I think it was at least the first game the TV really noticed pro football. Uh, 
how do, was your? I would imagine that, like as great a game as that was, it probably annoyed your dad. This was a guy that didn't like to lose. Yeah, you know, it was you know went down to the the, to the end, and uh, you know it was remarkable for its weather and all that stuff. And again, it was at the time the greatest game in pro football, which and they say it's what made television and uh, pro football such a good fix. Uh, so it was it was remarkable, but uh, you know you moved on. Yeah, exactly. And you guys moved on to Green Bay. And the thing I remember reading, I read a couple of books on this, was the complete change of culture. It was really important to your father to go in with those people in Green Bay and say, "All right, I'm going to take this thing, but I have complete control." Because I guess his attitude was, you know, this was his shot, and he wasn't going to let somebody come from the top and try to influence changes. I mean, he was going to give it his best change. Was that part of his thing? And he wanted to install that culture, too. Well, and it was a little more magnified in Green Bay. You didn't have a single owner. Uh, You had a board of directors. And they were used to giving input, uh, and, you know, overly so probably as opposed to a single owner and most of the other teams. So uh, the problem was probably a bit magnified. And uh, and then consequently, the solution had to be a little bit more magnified. Well, then how about these guys like Jerry Kramer, Paul Horning, Jim Taylor? He comes in. It's not what they're used to. You know, I mean, it, it was uh, and they've been losing for a long time, too. Did you get well, that kind of? Yeah, yeah, but they, you know, they were pretty young at the time, and and were moldable still. So, uh, uh, yeah, they had a losing deal, but uh, again, they hadn't been there that long that it was all that ingrained. So, and they were eager to, you know, they were just as eager as he was to turn it around. So they were pretty open to his methods. You know, today's NFL, they talk about head coaches that spend lots of time at the office and so forth and go on it. And I remember your dad's uh, sweep, you know, the famous Packers sweep. John Madden said he went and it was a two-day seminar on that, and he on one play, and he realized, wow, there's a lot to this. Did you see a lot of that? I mean, was your dad constantly working on it? I'm sure in his mind it was always going. Yeah, uh, and unlike today, uh the Packers uh, headquarters in the stadium area were not that far from home. No, no place was far from any place in Green Bay. So actually he did a lot of work at home uh, on during the off season, watched a lot of film in the basement and that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, it was, it was a roll up your sleeves pretty much 24, seven, 12 months a year. And I was always fascinated by how much faith really played a part in your your dad's life. I mean, he grew up with it, uh, could have become a priest. Uh, but I know, you know, growing up Catholic, he was there every single day. It was an important part, and it really did fit into how he looked at coaching as well, didn't he? I mean, there, I mean, people say that there's an obvious separation, but I, I think there's some of that just comes from the consistency and so forth of it. Well, his faith was important, uh, and as you mentioned, he did study for the priesthood. Uh, so it, it, you know, there, there wasn't a, a line. You didn't draw a line between, uh, everything else and his faith. It just, one influenced the other. So it was, uh, again, very important and it just, uh, influenced everything he did. So the first season turns out pretty good. I mean, they had the first winning season they had in a long time. It was an up and down season. There was a period, 
But uh, by the time the season was finished, you knew this was going somewhere. Could you see the, the could you feel like the difference in your father? Because it had to be like, okay, we're almost there. Because he was in a, he inherited a team that what they only won one game, I think, the year before. Yeah, again, uh, we weren't there then, so I, I can't really compare before and after. Uh, uh, but uh, clearly there was talent in that team and it hadn't been handled very well. And so the minute somebody came in and uh, was clearly in charge and clearly knew what he was doing, uh, the younger players, and most of them were pretty young, uh, picked up on that and were eager to you know, do whatever they were uh, told to, to see it happen. So 1960, they actually get to the NFL championship. Great game. Just lose to the Eagles. But that was important because he passed on this message, and they all the, the veterans talk about it. It's like, that isn't going to happen again. And, and I guess, was that one of those things where once you've gone through it, you realize, okay, if what, whatever happened there, you know you got to work harder? I mean, was that kind of the message behind that? Well, you know, he did, you know, whether it was an offhand comment or whatever, he said, well, you know, well, I'll tell you one thing, we'll never lose another championship game, which was a pretty bold statement. Uh, and only on reflection, the fact that they didn't, uh, does it take on meaning. But, uh, uh, again, they, they knew they were going in the right direction. They knew they were uh, slowly, uh, you know, putting the pieces together. So uh, going forward, uh, you know, most of them, uh, wasn't hard to keep your head up. The NFL really changed in that whole period when your dad was in Green Bay. I mean, really, it's the golden era. I think it's the thing that really kicked off what we have today. From, you know, the 50s, really, where he's back in New York to when he retires in Green Bay, and you, you were able to see all that. What do you think the biggest differences are with the league? What did you see the biggest change? Was it uh, Ro Pete Rozelle uh, kind of bringing in, you know, a, a real s strong leadership to the league? Was it TV? Well, what? Or I guess it's all those things. Well, I think a lot of it was television. Uh, as we mentioned before, as you mentioned before, that uh, championship game uh, called the greatest uh, game ever played. Uh, with against the Colts, I believe uh, it was had mostly to do with what people started tuning in on television. Up until that time, college football was premier, and pro football was kind of an afterthought. And after that game, uh, you know, pro, pro football kind of came to the fore, uh, television-wise, and you know, it's been kind of going uphill ever since. Yeah, and in the, that same time period. Uh, from uh, JFK's assassination, the Vietnam War, and so forth. Real turbulent times. And it seemed to me a lot of people look to your father as one of the cultural leaders. I mean, both from being an old-fashioned Democrat, but also a, a kind of, um, you know, a, a true, like, uh, traditional American. And um, he was kind of pulled in the both ways. I understand, like, even... Uh, President Nixon was thinking of running, uh, asking him to run as vice president, which is interesting. Was that something you could feel there? I mean, did those times bother him? Because I imagine just seeing all that turbulence in his in his country would offend the guy that really watches it so closely. Uh, yeah. I, I, again, uh, if you know, if you were a concerned person, concerned citizen, it would bother you no matter what what was going on. Uh, the fact that he had a little bit of a platform, 
because of uh, pro football, you know, uh, kind of emphasized that. But again, you know, it, it was wasn't hard to not to be to be you know wasn't hard to be disturbed because again things a lot of things were trending kind of kind of the different and uh, so he had a platform where he could speak up and say something or do something and uh, took it seriously. Yeah, and do you think being in Green Bay was actually a positive for that? Because people associated him with the, you know, the mid- middle America. I mean, you know, kind of a smaller thing, as opposed to being somebody from New York. You think that might have made a difference? Well, maybe. I think the I think the winning, the yeah. winning had had more to do with the fact that it gave him that platform. But certainly, uh, being in a small town like Green Bay gave it a gave it an interesting twist. Well, he wins the title in 61 and 62. Uh, those had to be really heady times because I, I, the people in Green Bay were thrilled and it was only the start. Who knew? But um, I, I guess it becomes a challenge. I always think, you know, everybody has talks about winning his trophy now, but you think about it, each time you win, I guess you want to win more. And, and it's a real it's a real drive, but it, it, I think it gets harder every time. Did you kind of feel that way too, that it kind of, each time it gets a little harder because – you know, it, you're setting the bar so high. Well, when you win, other teams, uh, you know, want to beat you even more so. So it's it's a bigger uh, item on their schedule when you show up. And so you're getting their best effort. And therefore, every game you got to give uh, your best effort. So, yeah, you know, they got kind of a... Uh, you know, people are taking aim at them because they're, they're they're the champions, so it makes it a little tougher. 63 and 64, both good seasons, but they didn't win the championship. The big thing in 63 is uh, Paul Horning getting caught in that gambling uh, deal with Alex Karras where they he was suspended for the season. And I know that Horning was really uh, a popular player with your dad. It must have been really difficult for him because he really liked him, but at the same time, I could see him being a guy that would be totally against gambling at that, at that period of time. Well, yeah, it, it you know it was yeah at that period of time. Now look, we got teams in Las Vegas for crying out loud. So <laughs> things have turned. But yeah, at the time, and Paul never bet on Packer games. Uh, he just you know uh, would uh, you know put a couple bucks down on other games. And uh, at the time, it was that was serious. So uh, he got suspended, and it was I think part. My dad was more disappointed in him as a. As a person having nothing, having nothing to do with uh, playing football, uh, but yeah, Paul was a great guy, and uh, it was sorely missed that year. When he came back, your dad was really good to him and kind of put that aside, and you know, because he had had the reputation. I remember with the Jim Ringo thing and so forth, where hey, you know, this is all about winning, and uh, I'm going to run the team my way. You know, there wasn't a lot of room for error, but Horning was something special too, wasn't he? I mean, kind of, uh, you know, he was. He was part of that mix that made the Packers so powerful in those days. Well, he was a, a good guy, a great teammate. Uh, you know, got a lot of attention and just, you know, never it never affected him as far as in the locker room. He was always just one of the guys. And, uh, uh, and he had a, a swagger about him that, uh, you know, spread to the rest of the team, and that was good. And, again, he was just a good guy. And it would you know you'd you'd be hard pressed not to like him under under any circumstances. 
And then the other guy that was really close to your dad, different type of personality by all means, is Bart Starr. Uh, he just was ended up being the perfect quarterback f- for your dad. Yet when your dad came in, he was one of three. I think he was third string initially. Yeah, and again, I, I don't think uh, Bart's uh, skill set would have fit everybody's offense, but he did. Uh, work, you know, it fit quite well with what my dad wanted to do, and had no ego. Just, uh, just a good guy, hardworking guy, and team first. And uh, so it, it was a good fit. And again, I'm not sure that would have worked everywhere, but it, it in Green Bay, it uh, it was a good fit. Well, you know, I think one of the things your dad initially, when he came in, set up is like, hey, you know, you're going to do it my way or we're going to get rid of you. And consequently, the the guys that bought into his, uh, bought into his philosophy, uh, not only, which is interesting to me, not only one on the field, but when they got into business, guys like Willie Davis uh, was a very successful businessman and, and his other stories like that, and they give him all the credit for it. Well, yeah, I... Uh... You know, Willie was an, another good guy and, again, did have a lot of success, a hard-working guy. Uh, but, again, it was a good fit with a lot of those players. And, uh, you know, when you win, uh, things get uh, easier. Uh, you're you're more willing to put up with uh, everything if you're winning. I don't think my dad's style would have gone over very long if they were losing. So, uh, again, winning is a <laughs> – again uh, – levels out a lot of things. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I remember my dad was a Safeway manager. And all of a sudden he had in in his manager's office, uh, Think Green, and Safeway had adopted, uh, your dad came in and did a few um, business uh, films for him, and this was like in the mid-60s. And I remember my, my dad saying, like, you know, for a guy who is known for being a football coach, he really gets this stuff. And I, and I guess that was a philosophy. I almost think, I know your dad had kind of looked into, I think, law at one point and so forth. I got a feeling he probably would have been successful at almost anything he did. Uh, probably. Uh, I, 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 you know, I don't know. But, yeah, he had the, he had the qualities to... Whatever he turned his mind to, I think would have turned out uh, would have turned out fine. Uh, uh, good education, good family, came from a good family, and uh, so uh, again, whatever he, as you mentioned, uh, whatever he turned his mind to probably would have would have worked out. He was a teacher uh, in addition to coaching in high school, and was a, a as I'm told a great teacher. And uh, so again, uh, whatever it would probably worked out. Yeah, well, he was famous for saying, which he didn't actually say, as and I wanted to ask you about this today, winning is the only thing. Well, that is, actually isn't exactly what he said, although I guess that right that was a contextually what he meant. Yeah, he said, you know, the will to win and everything, I think, is what he meant. And uh, But, you know, it, it got le- that statement got legs of its own, and uh, you didn't really, you couldn't push back against it because, uh, again, it got legs of its own. And he let it ride. So we get. First of all, I've got to ask you this question: sixty-five, sixty-six, sixty-seven championships. Sixty-five. Um, this is from uh, one of our folks who wanted me to ask you specifically: Did Don Chandler really make that field goal? <laughs> did you? Do you remember that in that championship game? Uh, yeah, I, I think. I think uh, you know, I was on the sidelines, but uh, yeah, I think he did. I don't. At the time, I'm not sure there was a whole lot of. It was an issue. 
Yeah, well, now, of course, that would have gone through 100 replays. But (laughs) anyway, uh, it wins the two Super Bowls, and I think that was really important at that time because the NFL, he was getting a lot of pressure, wasn't he, from, like, the other owners and coaches, like, hey, you can't let the AFL win. Well, the rivalry was, uh, you know, uh, a big deal, uh, mainly because it was costing everybody a lot of money. Uh, uh, So... uh, was a big deal, and uh, uh, so he was kind of carrying the load for all of the rest of the NFL against the AFL, and uh, didn't know didn't know how good they were or weren't uh, the AFL. So uh, that first Super Bowl, anyway, was uh, critical for a lot of reasons. Uh, again, there was quite a bit of animosity, and uh, so it was it was important to the rest of the NFL. Yeah, and I remember how I felt as a little kid. I was an Oakland Raider fan. That was, uh, of course, that was a tough way to end that what was otherwise a great season. But he goes back, uh, you know, retires, and the Packers just went right over the cliff at that point. And then he goes to Washington in 69. And what I find interesting about that is he had a really good season, but it wasn't this tumultuous thing that you read about in Green Bay. Was it at that time, do you think, that the Redskin players, by the time he came in, his legend kind of preceded himself, so nobody questioned, nobody fought back, and consequently, they won. Well, that was certainly part of it. Uh, his, his, uh, you know, his reputation preceded him, and they hadn't won in a long time, so they were pretty hungry in terms of wanting to win. And they had some, uh, you know, some decent players on that roster. Certainly, uh, Sonny Jurgensen was one of them, quarterback. So. Um, it didn't didn't take him long, my father long, to get their attention and uh, get him to you know see his see his way of doing things. Then he passes away at a really early age of fifty seven. Um, I, I saw grown men crying. I remember that distinctly because it took everybody by surprise. I didn't realize it. Were people reaching out to you and and to, and to the family at that time quite all over the place? Because he affected so many lives. It just seems like uh, it was almost a national event. Um, yeah, uh, my uh, the one memory uh, that I guess uh, backs that up is uh, the funeral took place in New York City. And then we had to drive down the, the to the New Jersey coast uh, for the burial. And uh, as we went down there, uh, the streets, highways, and the back streets were just lined with people. I mean, uh, they knew the route. And so there were just people all along the way uh, down to the cemetery, which was... And then outside the church, St. Patrick's, it was uh, jammed. And so that was uh, that was pretty remarkable, actually. It's incredible. I have one last question for you. And a lot of people, when I told them I was going to talk with you, everybody was interested in it. And I think they want to kind of know what happened to you. You know, a- afterwards, I, obviously, you've had a successful career. I know in, in the world of business and so forth. Kind of talk about what you did. And as you've lived with this legacy all your life, one of the things that comes across in these documentaries, and even talking to you now, is this kind of like an, an even-handed look at this thing, not being, oh, you know, over-caught up with, wow, how great this is, or like, wow, what a hardship this was. People just look at it like a really eyewitness to history. What's your life been, uh, you know, uh, post uh, post your dad's life? Well, 
when I was a senior in high school, my dad asked me, you know, what do you, and I said, well, I want to be a coach. And he said, and somebody were, when I was going off to college and he said, well, you know, kind of, he said over my dead body, he said, uh, because in those days coaching didn't pay like it did. You know, all coaches, kids coach today because it's, you know, the remuneration is pretty good. Right. It wasn't the case then. So, you know, I said, well, okay, what do you want me to do? He said, you ought to go to law school. I said, I'm not going to law school. Uh, well, I got to be senior in college. I had nothing better to do, so I went to law school. <laughs> uh, and But I still wanted to get into football, and I had to wait for my dad to pass away before I could do that. And got into football right, pretty much right after he passed away. And st- did that for quite a while and then uh, transitioned off to other things. Uh, but, uh, you know, um, it, it, it is what it is. It was what it was. And, uh, you can't, you can't live on that. You got to make your own, do your own thing. And so, uh, uh, things worked out all right. Yeah, and it, it is interesting that he said that, and of course he's looking at it from a really practical standpoint that you can't make that money at that. Do you wish you would have got into coaching, or, or you know, is it one well, of those I, things? Yeah, you think I, right? I don't. I don't. Uh, I'm glad the you know the time I spent in football it was uh, was good, and I think I was in the right place, at the right time, doing the things I was supposed to do. Uh, I don't know if I would have been a good coach or not, and. Uh, I haven't, uh, I haven't lost any sleep over this. <laughs> well, Vince Lombardi Jr., what a pleasure. Thank you very much. Really enjoyed talking about uh, your very fascinating life. Uh, thanks so much for spending the time with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. Please follow Vegas Never Sleeps on all social media platforms, which includes X, Facebook, and Instagram. And thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Mitch. He reminding you, Vegas Never Sleeps. Vegas, here we go! Do you have a car sitting around you want to get rid of? Then here's a great idea. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Yes, one fast call to the Veteran Car Donation Program and we'll come and remove your car for free. Fast, free towing, and 24-hour response. You can donate most cars, trucks, or SUVs in most conditions. The proceeds raised goes to help active military, veterans, and their families, and you get a tax deduction. All you need to do is make this free call. Get rid of that old car and help the vets. We make it easy. Make this free call now and book your fast and easy pickup. Call the Veteran Donation Program now. Donate your car and help veterans and their families. Operators are standing by. Here's the number. 800-932-1176. That's 800-932-1176. Holy gentle giants dog food, Batman. I'm Burt Ward, Robin from the Batman TV series. I was the caped crusader, and now I'm the canine crusader. After rescuing and feeding 15,500 dogs for 23 years, my wife and I created a natural, low-fat, heart-healthy, made-in-America dog food and special feeding and care program designed to help all dogs live amazingly longer, healthier, happier lives. Our dogs are living as long as 27 healthy, active years. 
years. Yours can too. That's twice their normal lifespan and triple for some breeds. Would you like your dog to live as long as 27 years and still be active and healthy? Gentle Giants Dog Food is complete nutrition for all dogs and puppies, all ages and sizes, and is different from other dog foods without the greasy coating and high fat content that can shorten your dog's life. Try our Gentle Giants life-enhancing dog food for the longer, healthier, happier life of your dog. If you're living with diabetes and using insulin, you know the pain of pricking your fingers over and over again. Ouch! Well, by wearing a small remote device called a Continuous Glucose Monitor, or CGM, you can reduce the pain of pricking your fingers. If you administer insulin three or more times per day or use an insulin pump, call now and learn how a CGM can help you. Painless. No more pricking my finger. No finger pricks. Convenience. They delivered it free and they took care of all the paperwork. You can reduce pain right away. Plus, it's accurate, easy to use, and helps you spend more time in range. And if you have insurance, you can get a new CGM at little or no out-of-pocket cost. Call now and get free shipping of your new CGM. Plus, we'll bill your insurance for you. 800-483-7217. 800-483-7217. 800-483-7217. That's 800-483-7217. 